We will be looking at some text this evening, but we want to discuss this matter of provenance, and so we begin with the question, what is provenance? What does that word mean? And I had kind of warned you last time about uh, this, that I would be asking about it. So, Kay, did you look up your Funk and Wagnalls? No, all right, okay. The antique around a piece of antique something is a story around it. Okay, very good. Uh, it, that's getting into the category, the, a story around it. It refers to the milieu or the environment around something, <coughs> French term. In our, uh, for our purposes, uh, we want to talk about the origin or place and region of origin for this epistle. Or at least we want to think about that question. So from what provenance, from what place of origin, region of origin, milieu of origin, did the epistle of Jude arise? Now that can be important biblically. For instance, what's the provenance of the epistle of Paul to Philemon. Well, what's the that's the provenance of the epistle, place of origin? Where is Paul when he writes it? He is in Rome. Where in Rome? He is in prison. It's one of his prison epistles. In other words, provenance with respect to Philemon tells us a little bit about the context of the letter. In other words, the environment out of which it originated. What about the provenance of the book of Revelation? He was on an island of Patmos. Where's the island of Patmos, Cheryl? Your husband's answering for you. I understand. I understand. This is an equal union. Okay. It's it's not off of Greece as much as it is off of Turkey or Asia Minor. Correct. It's off the coast. It's a west, just western, west in the Mediterranean, off the coast of or the Aegean, off the coast of Asia Minor. And we'll do one more. Uh, the provenance of the epistle to the Romans. Where is Paul when he writes the epistle to the Romans? I think he was in Corinth. He is in Corinth. That's correct. That's the traditional view that he was in Corinth and sent it uh, by by the uh, by, by the brothers who were associated with him. All right. So this issue of provenance, place of origin has significance for other New Testament epistles. Let's think about that with respect to the epistle of Jude. Now, what clues, then, would we follow in order to attempt an answer to this question, from what place did it originate, or from what region did it originate, or out of what milieu did it originate? Could you think of a clue that we might examine in order to answer that question? Well, how about the identity of the author? Okay. How about the identity of the writer? Who is? 
Jude. Jude. And it may suggest that his identity would reflect upon the region of origin. Well, what about Jude? What is his origin? What is he? He's the brother of the Lord Jesus. Okay. What region of origin? Galilee. Galilee. Good. Larger than Galilee. Jerusalem. Not Jerusalem. Larger than Galilee. Because Galilee is a province. Palestine. Palestine. All right. So he's a Palestinian. Is he a Palestinian Roman? He is a Palestinian Jew. All right. So the author and his uh, milieu, namely he is a Jew in Palestine, may be a clue to the provenance of this epistle. Like the author, this epistle may have originated in Palestinian Judaism. It may have originated. All right. Now, a second clue. There's something within the epistle that might give us a clue about its place of origin, or at least the environment of its place of origin. All right, let's think about one of the distinctive emphases in this epistle. If you've read through it, you notice that the author uses Old Testament themes, In fact, percentage-wise, that is, if you count the verses in which he cites the Old Testament and you figure the total verses over the number of verses he cites in the Old Testament, he has one of the highest percentages of the use of the Old Testament percentage-wise in the New Testament, which means that our author is very familiar with the Old Testament. In fact, his Old Testament citations are closer to the Hebrew Old Testament text than they are to the Greek Old Testament text. Now, this would be consistent with a Palestinian Jew. A Palestinian Jew would be very familiar with the Old Testament, and he would be familiar with the Old Testament in terms of its Hebrew or Masoretic style, not its Greek or Septuagintal style. So the theme of the use of the Old Testament also points in the direction of Palestinian Judaism. Now the third clue is perhaps the most interesting and the most, shall we say, a little bit complex, but let's pick it apart And that's the clue of language. This epistle was written in what language? Greek. Greek. It is written in Greek, which would suggest a provenance outside of Palestine. In other words, Greek language equals Greek provenance. We might suggest Alexandria, for instance, What was the common language in Alexandria, Egypt at this time? It was, in fact, Greek. For who established Alexandria, Egypt? Alexander the Great. In fact, he brought the Greek tongue and he brought the Greek culture to that city, which he established and built with his own name. It had one of the 
largest libraries, if not the largest library in the ancient world, was established at Alexandria with many Greek volumes there. All right. We could also suggest that with respect to uh, language origin, that the Greek language of the epistle could reflect a Greek provenance in Corinth or in Asia Minor. In fact, some liberals note that because this epistle is written in Greek and, in fact, written in very good Greek, this is an excellent Greek style, okay, that Jude, the brother of Jesus, could not have been the author. Now, why would they say that? Why would they say that because the Greek of the epistle is so good, Jude could not have been the author? Probably for the same reason as Paul didn't write Hebrews. Thinking of what, Robert? The the Greek would have been too good for him to have written it. Why? Palestinian Jew. Palestinian Jew? No, because Paul's not a Palestinian Jew. About Jude? Jude? Um, Tell me a little more. You're on the right track. Jesus, correct? Okay, yes. Why would he know Greek? Okay, you're, you're, you're thinking that just because he's a Palestinian Jew, he wouldn't know Greek. I, it's, a little, it's a little more nefarious than that uh, for, for the liberals who reject the authorship of Jude. He's raised where? He's raised where? Galilee. Galilee? What, what town? Nazareth. He's raised in Nazareth. He's a Jewish peasant. He's a Jewish peasant. And so the argument is a Jewish peasant would not have this capability. Besides the fact that he is a Palestinian Jew, he would not have been literate enough to write Greek of this quality. And so that supports their notion of the pseudonymity of the epistle. Pseudonymity means somebody took his name in order to give the epistle credibility. Now, that's one of the standard liberal views of the epistle. That's not our view here, nor is it the view of the epistle itself, in my opinion. But let's think for a moment about that issue. What if the skill in Greek does not originate in Hellenistic cities or Hellenistic centers? Is it possible that the Greek ability of the author of this epistle originates from the prevalence of Greek and Greek speakers in Palestine. Greek speakers in Palestine. Hellenistic speakers in Palestine. Well, what evidence do we have for that? Well, let's turn to the book of Acts. And let's examine chapter 6, verse 1 of the book of Acts. And when somebody has the first verse, if you'll read it out, please. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. 
Thank you, Bob. Now, Grecian Jews, actually in the Greek text, it's Hellenistic Jews. Acts 6.1. And where are these Hellenistic Jews or Greek-speaking Jews? Notice verse 42 above. What's this? In Jerusalem. How do you know, Bob? That's where the temple is. That's where the temple is. All right, so this setting here, the provenance of this verse, verse of chapter 6 is Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, we are told that there are Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews, and there are also Hebrew-speaking Jews. So that there are Palestinian Jews who are conversant in Greek, according to Acts 6.1. Now let's skip down in this same chapter to verse 9. Acts 6. Verse 9. And once again, would you read it out if you have it? Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilica, Cilicia, Cilicia sorry, and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen that they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Thank you. All right, now, the clue here is the fact that in Jerusalem, which we know is the context of this sixth chapter, there is a synagogue. It's called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. And you'll notice that there are Cyrenians in there, and there are Alexandrians there, and there are Cilicians and others from Asia or Asia Minor there. Now, the question is, what language would these, uh, the members of this synagogue be speaking? The clue is in Alexandrians and Cilicians. All right, Alexandrians would speak what language? Greek. Greek. Cilicians, where's Cilicia? Who do you know from Cilicia? The Apostle Paul. You know what town he's from in Cilicia. Where is he from? Tarsus. Tarsus. Where's Tarsus? Tarsus is in Cilicia, which is the southeastern corner of Turkey, right at the point where Turkey bends down towards the coast of Syria and Lebanon. That's where Cilicia, that's where the Cilician gates are, and Tarsus is is in the region or in the mountains of that region. So Cilicia is the province from which the Apostle Paul came. He was born there, and the language of Cilicia in Paul's day would have been Greek as it was in Alexander. So this is a Greek-speaking synagogue, a synagogue of Jews who speak Greek in Jerusalem. And they are freedmen, meaning that they are probably liberated slaves. All right, so according to Acts chapter 6, we have a subculture of Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem. These Hellenistic Jews are Greek-speaking. They are part of a Hellenistic culture a culture which came to Palestine with Alexander the Great in 330 B.C. And they've been there. That culture has been nourished. It has flourished. 
It has survived. It survived to the point that it's established a synagogue. And this is probably not the only Greek-speaking synagogue in Palestine. This is one we know about in Jerusalem. It is likely that there were others. All right, now finally, we note that in this uh, text, Stephen is opposed by these Hellenistic Jews. Stephen is opposed by this synagogue of Jews. So let's turn over to chapter 9 for a moment. Acts chapter 9. And let's look at verse 29. Acts chapter 9, verse 29. If you have it, go ahead and read it out. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. And who is he who is talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. Stephen? No. Stephen is dead. He's been stoned. Paul. This is Paul. And it's interesting, is it not? The very same Jerusalem culture of Hellenistic Jews oppose Stephen and they oppose Paul. They do kill Stephen. They try to kill Paul. And Paul is hustled out of town by the Christians in order to save his life. All right, so once again, we notice that there is this antagonistic group of Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem, which means that there's a Jewish subculture, a Greek-speaking Jewish subculture in Jerusalem and beyond. Now, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, a passage we looked at earlier in our study of this epistle. And let's think about 1 Corinthians 9, 5, in the light of this question about speaking Greek or knowing Greek. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5. Once again, when you have it, go ahead and read it out. Do we not have a right to take a wrong and believing wife, even... Even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. All right, now in this verse, as we indicated a couple of weeks ago, the brothers of the Lord would include whom? Would include Jews. Okay? Now, notice in going along with Paul, Paul's writing the letter, okay? In going along with Paul, these individuals, uh, notice verse 11. These verse, these individuals sow spiritual things in you or among you. And notice verse 14, these individuals also proclaim the gospel of the Lord. Paul's talking about his missionary activity. He's talking about going along through the regions of Asia Minor and elsewhere. These are Greek-speaking regions. And as he goes along, he has companions, he has co-laborers, he has the brothers of the Lord who are sharing spiritual things and proclaiming the gospel along with him. Now, if these brothers of the Lord are along with Paul sharing spiritual things and proclaiming the gospel, in what language are they proclaiming it? In Greek. 
in Greek, with the possible exception of when they'd enter a synagogue. Okay? But Paul has been ejected from the synagogues many times, and it doesn't stop him from broadcasting his message, nor would it stop his co-laborers from broadcasting the message. So there's a high probability here that Jude and the brothers of the Lord Jesus, in accompanying Paul, were accompanying him because they had facility in the language of the, of the world at that time, the lingua franca of the world, namely Greek. All right, if Jude is highly skilled in Greek, as his epistle shows, and if his Greek is literary, rhetorical, oratorical, does this not indicate a skilled literary a rhetorical and oratorical craftsman. In other words, an artist in the Hellenistic or Greek idiom. I think it does. I'm assuming some things that I haven't proven, but because you can't dem- I can't demonstrate them to you because I have to use the Greek text to do it, but I will show that as we go through the epistle. There is great literary skill here in this epistle. There's great rhetorical skill in this epistle. We'll get a little bit of an insight into it when we look at the structure later on this evening. But our question now is, since we acknowledge that the Greek is very good Greek, and all scholars admit this, liberal and conservative alike, and if we acknowledge that Jude had some facility in the Greek language, else he could not have functioned with the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys, nor could he have functioned in the center of Jerusalem with his Jewish, with his Greek-speaking Jewish synagogue, then our question is, where did he learn it? How did he gain this skill? Robert. Okay. Um, all throughout the Roman Empire, the language of government was Latin, and the language of commerce was Greek. So if uh, what did Jude do for a living? We don't know. If he was any kind of a businessman, he would have been uh, uh, fluent in Greek. He would have to be. Good. You're anticipating. I like people that are ahead of me. Excuse me while I catch up, Robert. All right. Now, we would expect... His native tongue to be what? Hebrew or Aramaic. Why would we expect that? Because of where he was born. Because he is a Palestinian Jew. Galilean is fine. He's out of Nazareth. All right, now, what about this family? He's part of a family in Nazareth, okay? Is this family literate or illiterate? They are literate. How do you know, Pam? Because uh, Joseph was... Um, oh, no. I want a biblical passage. How do we know that this family was literate? Jesus was a rabbi. Jesus was a rabbi. He called a rabbi. Does that mean he had official title of a rabbi or official training? We can't demonstrate that, but I still need a passage. All right, let's turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And when you have verses 16 and 17, please read them out. Luke 4, 16 and 17. 
where he had been brought up, as was his custom. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Fine. All right, so, obviously Jesus could read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He was trained to read the Hebrew text. So he was literate in that sense, meaning that he could read the text. I think he was also literate in the sense that he could write the text. So that we know that the family had encouraged the ability to read Hebrew. Jesus is proof of that. So I'm going to say this brother, like that brother, like their father. What do I mean by that sequence? This brother, Jesus, like that brother, Jude, like their father, Joseph. All right, now, why would that be so? There are several reasons. First of all, because of what we would call the bar mitzvah today, where every Jewish boy has to read the Hebrew scriptures publicly. It's a rite of passage. Okay? So... That tradition goes very far back into Jewish culture. And there's no reason to think that the family would have trained the boys to read the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew text, whatever scrolls they might have had at their at hand through the synagogue or whatever else they might have had. Now, that being the case, that argues that Joseph himself was literate. Obviously, He could read Hebrew and Aramaic. If he can read Hebrew, you can read Aramaic and vice versa. They're they're very similar. All right, now Joseph is a carpenter. He is a skilled carpenter, which means he's also a skilled craftsman. And as a craftsman, he would need to function in two cultures. He would need to function in his own Hebrew Jewish culture, commercially, And he would also need to function in a Hellenistic or Greek-speaking culture uh, commercially. That makes sense if, in fact, his economic activity, his his craftsman activity, his tradesman activity is necessary to support his very large family. How many people do he have in his family that he's supporting? Well, we start with Joseph himself. There's one. Who else is in this family? Mary, Mary is two. Jesus. Jesus is three. Two. How many brothers did he have? Jude. Jude is one. Good. James is another. Good. There's actually two more. Simon and Joseph. Okay, so we're up to seven, correct? And in Matthew 13, 56, and his sisters, plural. So at least two sisters. This family is now nine members large. It's going to take a significant amount of carpentry and craftsmanship to support such a family which also indicates a large clientele, a large group of customers, both Hebrew and Hellenistic. 
That would require the language of the village. That would require the language of the synagogue. But that would also require the language of international commerce as it passed through Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was not off the path. It wasn't on the main trade path, but it was nearby enough that there would be some trade trickling into Joseph's shop. And he would have been aware of others that also had the wealth in order to purchase his skills. Joseph is a merchant craftsman then. He moves in the language world of his labor and his income. And those language worlds include the language of the Hebrew and Aramaic tongue and the language of the Hellenistic tongue, the Greek tongue. Now, I grant you that this is a deduction, but I think it's a reasonable deduction in the light of Joseph's industry and in the light of the size of the family and in the light of of the position of Nazareth with respect to trade in Galilee and merchant traffic nearby. All right, now, having said that, let's go back to the book of Acts. In other words, we've got a preponderance that suggests that the family is... Comfortable in a commercial world, which includes both Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. Now, let's go back to chapter 1 of Acts and look at a passage we looked at once before, verse 14. And when you have it, read it out, please. Acts 1, 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And where are they devoting themselves to prayer? In the upper room, where? And where is this upper room? March? It's in Jerusalem. They're waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. All right, now we noted this verse in order to confirm the fact that Jude is a believer by the time of the ascension of his brother. Now I want you to notice one more thing. They're in Jerusalem. They're waiting for the outpouring of the Spirit. But in Jerusalem is this synagogue of the freedmen. In Jerusalem is this Hellenistic or Greek-speaking synagogue. In other words, in Jerusalem is this subculture of Hellenistic Jews. And the brothers are in Jerusalem in the arena or in the, in the milieu of that cultural Greek-speaking influence. In other words, they are comfortable enough to be exposed to that idiom. They are in Jerusalem as they were in Nazareth, exposed to a commercial and literary culture which has Greek-speaking capacity. And so Jude in Jerusalem with the disciples amongst a subculture of Greek-speaking Jews is possibly one who out of his background in the commercial traffic of his father's carpenter shop had picked up enough Greek in order to be conversant with the idiom. That is one suggestion for how he comes to be so proficient in it as to accompany the Apostle Paul on his missionary journey and be able to speak 
and share spiritual things in that language and proclaim the gospel in that language. But the skill of Jude with his literary, rhetorical, and oratorical elements in his epistle could also have come from the Hebrew literary tradition, the Hebrew literary style. It is possible that he is familiar enough with Greek idiom that he is familiar with Greek literary style. It is possible. It is possible that that's what gives his own style its highly skilled and artistic character. But it is also possible that his Hebrew background is behind this literary skill. In other words, what he instinctively has from understanding the Hebrew scriptures flows over into his using the idiom of the Greek language in order to express that skill in a literary and rhetorical style in the Greek tongue. Now, why do I say that the Hebrew cultural background, the Hebrew literary and rhetorical style may have impacted him? Because, yes, Ben? Because not of the Septuagint, but of the Hebrew text, that is the original Hebrew of the Old Testament, which, as you have been with me for years, those of you that have been with me for a while know that when I'm working on the Old Testament, one of the things I'm trying to point out to you is whether it's poetry or whether it's pose, whether it's narrative history or whether it's uh, Psalms or whether it's prophecy, we're dealing with writers who have a tremendous amount of literary skill. They are literary artists. They are craftsmen in the use of the Hebrew tongue. And they have rhetorical style about them that has a tremendous impact. We have pointed that out in the David narratives. We have demonstrated it in the Ruth narratives. We have pointed it out in the Psalms. We have pointed it out with Jeremiah and Daniel. We have noted that the Hebrew mind is a mind which is full of Semitic idiom. And that idiom is literary, rhetorical, poetic, effusive, emotive, Imaginary, it carries all of that type of powerful imagery with it. As you read the epistle of Jude, you're going to read powerful imagery. You're going to read a man who is very skilled in literary and rhetorical imagery. He is going to, in fact, bombard you with it. It may have come from his Greek-speaking experience. It is possible that that is the case. From Greek rhetorical style, that is possible But it is also equally possible that it derives from his Hebrew skill, from his skill in understanding how the Old Testament was written, how it was inspired, how it is such a literary masterpiece. For indeed it is. The Hebrew Old Testament is a masterpiece. It is a masterpiece of literary style. All right. My argument is that Jude is sufficiently exposed to the arenas or the milieu of skilled Greek literary rhetoric and skilled Hebrew literary rhetoric to account for his skill in writing his epistle. Then why write it in Greek? Robert? Because that was the language of commerce, so it would get to the most people. That is the common lingua franca of that world, which is exactly why 
Alexander the Great, in the providence of God, was sent to the Near East in order to bring the Greek tongue. It was God preparing the way for the Greek New Testament to be spread all over that Greek-speaking world. And Jude is a part of that world and understands that tongue. And so he writes his epistle in the language of which most people would be able to read it, comprehend it, and understand it. Even though it may come out of his own Semitic background, in terms of its particular style, he writes it in such a way in Greek so that that style will be communicated to the greatest number of people who can understand it and study it. All right. So, with respect to provenance in terms of authorship, theme, and language, we conclude that that Jude is a Palestinian Jew who is capable of writing in superb Greek because he was exposed to the milieu of the Greek-speaking and Hebrew-speaking culture. Biculturalist, if we want to, to put a label on him. And that accounts for the for the power and the craftsmanship of this epistle. Any questions about that? As we concluded this sampling of thoughts about the provenance of the epistle. All right, now let's turn to the question about destination. If we've answered the question about origin... Namely, it's likely that the epistle arises from a Palestinian Jewish milieu because of a Palestinian Jewish writer. To what type of Christian community is he writing? Obviously, this epistle is sent to a Christian community. It's destined, its, it's destination is a Christian community. A group of Christians is going to pick it up and read it. What particular group of Christians, we don't know. In other words, it's not an epistle written to a particular town or village or church. It's a general epistle. To Jews, okay? To Jews familiar with the Old Testament? Is it possible it's written then to Palestinian Jews? I would say yes. Is the author a Palestinian Jew? Yes. The author is a Palestinian Jew. Is it conceivable that the author is writing to a community of Palestinian Jews? It is conceivable that he writes his epistle to the Jewish community in Palestine, even as he is he himself originated. He was born into that community. Well, what does Acts chapter 9 tell us about that community? Let's take a look at Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. And when someone has it, please read it out. For the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoys peace being built up, and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. All right, now notice, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Those are all provinces of what country? Israel. Palestine. Palestine, correct. So, notice what we're being told here in Acts 9. There are in Palestine, namely in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, Christian churches being built, being planted. Okay, what church would be prominent in Judea? 
The church in Jerusalem. What church would be prominent in Galilee? The church in... Oh, Antioch? No, Antioch in Syria. Galilee. What church? Jude's hometown. Nazareth. Nazareth. At least we could say, like very possible in Nazareth, what church in Samaria? The church at... Church at... Samaria. In Samaria, where? Where? John chapter 4. What's Jesus doing in John chapter 4? Sychar. The woman at the well. Bit of church there. At least it had been a group of believers. Remember, she goes out and brings the whole village back to talk to Jesus. <clears throat> so we know that in Sychar, there's a believing community of Christians. From the time of the woman at the well, and here, <clears throat> this uh, place is also being targeted by the disciples to plant churches elsewhere. Now, why, why are they going out to plant these churches? Well, they were told. They're being scattered. They're being scattered. Because of persecution. Exactly. Because of persecution. So if we go back to chapter 8, verse 1. What's the cause of the persecution? After the stoning of Stephen, chapter 8, verse 1, read it out. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. All right, now notice chapter 8, verse 1 is telling you how the disciples were scattered, with the exception of the apostles, to the provinces of Judea and Samaria. That happened because of the persecution of the church after the death of Stephen. And who's the persecutor? Saul of Tarsus is the persecutor. Now, those churches having been planted as a result of that scattering and persecution, in chapter 9, we're told that they increase and they have peace after the persecution. Why do they have peace after the persecution of Paul? Because he's converted. That's correct. He's converted onto Damascus Road. He stops persecuting them. They have peace for a while. All right, now we can date this. At least we can make a rough estimate of the date. The persecution in Jerusalem probably lasts from about 31 to 34 A.D. The persecution of Paul comes at the end of that period, 
And so at about 34 AD, 34, 35, he is converted on the road to Damascus after standing by while Stephen was stoned to death. Remember, Paul was the coat rack when Stephen was stoned. You guys need to limber up your arms so you can throw your stones hard enough. I'll hold your robes. And Paul, he's the coat rack. He says, hang them on my, hang them on my fingertips here. Consenting to the death of Stephen as well as breathing out death with <clears throat> bills for the arrest and execution of Christians in Damascus as he's on his way north. So peace comes because Paul himself has been converted and he's not harassing the church any longer. His conversion about 35 A.D. And so the churches have this time of relief and they increase, they prosper. And who's planting these churches? The brothers of Jesus are planting these churches. Jude is one of them. These Hellenists, these Palestinian Jews are spreading the gospel throughout the region of their native influence and their, their native origin. But then trouble. They have peace and they increase, but then trouble. Trouble from intruders. Trouble from interlopers. Trouble from those who insinuate themselves into the community and introduce immorality into the community. Trouble from those who come into the community pandering with a great deal of success the lusts of the flesh. It always sells. It still does. And it still does within the Christian church. The faith and the doctrine and the life of these communities is threatened. In fact, it is undermined by these intruders. They subvert and torpedo their faith from within, from within the community itself. And Jude takes up his pen to warn and to encourage the faithful in those churches of the insinuation which has wormed its way into their midst. That is the occasion for this epistle. The occasion stands in the background of the destination of it and in the background of the provenance out of which it arose. It is, in my opinion, an epistle which is written out of a Palestinian Jewish milieu to those within a Palestinian Jewish Christian community setting. I'm not able to say it was written to Judea or to Samaria or to Galilee. It may have been written to community, a community in all three regions because they were interconnected. But nonetheless, it is my opinion that this epistle was written to Christians in those regions. Now, that uh, that opinion of mine is not, of course, infallible dogma. It's arguable. But I think it makes sense in terms of the elements we have examined here with respect not only to Jude's career, to Jude's capacity, but also to the quality of the language, particularly the Greek language, in this letter. Which leaves one thing for us to examine, and that's the date of this epistle. Can we date it? Well, we can at least set 
the outer limits, the termini, the terminus antiquem, and the terminus aquo. All right, now the Latin phrase terminus antiquem, what's the word anta mean? Not anti, 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 anta, it's a short e, not anti like a-n-t-i, that's a Greek preposition which means against. What's the Latin preposition anta mean? Before, it means before, okay? Terminus means point, okay? Point antiquem, point before which, correct, okay? So what's the point before which this epistle had been written? What's the outer limit? Of this epistle, a date beyond which it could not have been written. No, it would have to have been written after Christ's death. But it could not have been written after what date? Even before that. 62 A.D. Why do I say 62 A.D.? It could, it could not have written, been written after 62. It had to be written before 62. Why? What happened in 62 A.D.? Paul was executed. Not Paul. James. James is executed. The brother of Jude is executed in 62 A.D. Remember, Josephus tells us that he was executed by the high priest Ananus in Jerusalem in 62 A.D. And Jude mentions James, his brother, in this epistle. It's very likely that that mention is the mention of a living brother. So that this epistle precedes 62 AD. Well, what about the terminus a quo? What's the phrase, what's the prepositional phrase a quo mean? The point from which. All right, so what's the other uh, uh, side of this? It dates from before 62, so it couldn't have been written after 62. So when's the earliest date it could have been written? Well, let's consider that time of peace and prosperity that we read about in Acts 9.31. That those churches in, the, in Palestine, in the province of Galilee, Samaria, and Judea, that they increased. In other words, in 35 A.D., their harassment stopped. So they have peace to increase and to gain. How many years worth? What would you guess? How about five years? How about five years worth of peace and increase in, in, uh, uh, in prosperity as well as in expansion? Which would bring us from 35 A.D. to what year? 40 A.D. Okay, so possibly from 40 A.D. to 62 A.D. is the window in which this epistle originated. More than that, we cannot say with any precision. And in fact, this is a guess in its own right. In other words, we're guessing on the basis of the fact that James is dead in 62, so Jude had to write about his brother in the first verse of his epistle before his death. And this epistle could not have been written uh, before 40 AD because the church was in such a state of turmoil and has peace, notice, Acts tells you that at the end of that persecution that Paul was leading, that church had peace. Those churches in that region increased because they had peace and stability. That does not indicate that interlopers and intruders are stirring up trouble inside those churches. 
which means that there had to have been a period of time for them to mature, stabilize, and increase. So, we suggest possibly between 40 and 62 A.D. for the origin of this epistle. All right, do you have any questions? There is a degree of speculation in this, and yet it is reasoned speculation. It makes some sense when you consider all of the clues that are here, particularly as we look at the epistle in the light of some of the things we know about Palestinian Judaism from the book of Acts. Take a break, and we'll come back to look at the structure of the epistle. Now you have a copy of, <clears throat> excuse me, of my suggestion for the structural pattern of the Epistle to Jude. Uh, this is an outline or a structural proposal which is based on the Greek text. It is not based upon the English, because when we're dealing with the structure of any book of the Bible, we must deal with the original language. We cannot deduce structure from the English translation. That underscores the importance of continuing to have skill in the original languages, Hebrew and Greek, and requiring that skill for those who enter the ordained ministry of the Christian church. That has always been a requirement of the Reformed churches, but is now slipping. It has been a requirement of reform seminaries, but is now slipping. In fact, it is possible to graduate from some reform seminaries without being able to read one consonant of Greek or one letter, one consonant of Hebrew or one letter of Greek. This, in my opinion, is an abomination, but it is the pressure of the, shall we say, English Bible approach to the Bible. I don't need anything more than my English Bible to preach <clears throat> or to explain the meaning of the words on the page. The words on the page are derived from other words on a page, Hebrew and Aramaic in the case of the Old Testament, Greek in the case of the New, if you do not have some facility or orientation with those original languages and words on the page, then how is it that you can make decisions about what your, Greek your English words mean and whether those English words have been correctly translated or correctly nuanced or not? It's impossible for you to do that because you cannot use the lexicons or the word books which help you make those decisions, let alone the commentaries that are based upon them. Because you have to be able to affirm <clears throat> or correct the views of the commentator if he's using the original language. You have to be able to know that he's within the ballpark with respect to his interpretation of a word or a phrase or not. And the only way you can make those judgments is whether you have some understanding of the original tongue. So if <clears throat> the uh, reform seminaries continue on this path of de-emphasizing and eliminating the original languages, then ultimately what we are going to have is increased hidden agenda preaching. 
Now, we, in fact, have a great deal of that, too much of it already. But my point here is that when you lose contact with the inspired text, I admit we do not have an autographer here in the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts, but we have the essence of the inspired text. We have enough manuscripts that have been discovered over 2,000 years to say we have, as Bibel Warfield said, we have, in essence, the inspired text before us. When we move away from that, because we can't read it, then we're moving away from the highest level of authority with respect to the Word of God, namely the very Word that God, the Holy Spirit, inspired for us to know and understand. That's the reason we've always said in the Presbyterian and Reformed tradition we need an educated clergy. We don't allow busboys to take the pulpit. We don't allow allow grease monkeys to take the pulpit. That's no insult to busboys and grease monkeys who have a skill, and that's a function that they can exercise well to the glory of God for that matter. But they don't understand Greek and Hebrew. They don't understand the idiom of which the Bible has originated. They don't understand the provenance of the language. Therefore, they're not capable of holding the pulpit. And we in the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition have said that's always necessary that they understand these things to hold the pulpit. To proclaim the word of God faithfully, accurately, and passionately. You need to understand the original Hebrew tongue and the original Greek tongue. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be a a Ph.D. expert in the language. But you have enough knowledge and competence in the language you make your way through the text itself with the aid of your dictionary, lexicons, and word books. And if you have a better critical commentary, which uses the Hebrew and Greek text, then you can make decisions about whether that commentator is reading the text correctly because you know enough about it to judge righteous judgment with respect to his use of it. Well, that's a rabbit trail off of the outline being in the original Greek here, or based upon the original Greek. But uh, I want to underscore the fact that these phrases and patterns on this page in front of you are based upon what comes out of the Greek text of the epistle. It's not based upon my imposing a pattern upon the epistle from the English translation. These are all anchored in patterns which are found in the Greek text. Now, this outline, you will notice, follows a pattern of symmetry or balanced parallel repetition. Now, that reinforces my emphasis upon the Semitic background of Jude, that is, his ability to have understood Hebrew literary and rhetorical patterns. Because Semitic paradigm is symmetrical. Semitic paradigm is parallel. Hebrew paradigm is parallel and symmetrical. You see it in the Psalms. You see the two lines of a verse of a psalm which look like they're similar. 
Okay, we've gone over this before. I won't repeat it. You can go back into my lectures on the on uh, the, the Psalms and find this pattern of what is A and what is more than A B in this pattern of symmetry between the two lines in a generally in a Psalm stanza or verse. All right, it's that pattern of symmetrical repetition, parallel repetition, which we see here in this epistle. I'm going to call it the rule of twos. The rule of twos. Now, when we get into this epistle, I'm going to show you the rule of threes. There's more than a rule of twos. But with respect to this structural outline, I want you to notice the rule of twos. For instance, there is an introduction opening to this epistle. Some would call it a salutation. I'm going to call it an introduction opening. But you also know that notice that there is a conclusion closing to this epistle. In other words, there's a symmetrical twofer here that balances itself in terms of opening and closing, beginning and ending, introduction and conclusion. It is intentionally present. It is there in the structure of the text. He did it on purpose. He does it to frame his letter. All right, now, in addition to that introduction opening, there is a greeting and a benediction in the first two verses. If you look at those verses, you will notice that he greets them, those to whom he's writing, and he pronounces a benediction at the opening of this letter. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Interesting that he puts the benediction at the beginning and not at the end. Well, what does he place at the end? He places a farewell, even as he's greeted them at the beginning, he says farewell to them at the end by way of a doxology. So he balances his benediction with a doxology. He balances his opening greeting with a farewell. Parallel, symmetrical, twofer. Now, many scholars and commentators have presented an outline to the epistle of Jude. The most ambitious is that of Ernst Wendland, who is a master of Greek and Hebrew and teaches in Central Africa. Wendland is no amateur when it comes to the original languages either the Hebrew tongue or the Greek. He is well worth consulting and reading. And he has a marvelously contrived chiasm for the outline of this epistle. But he's wrong. (laughs) Peon Denison says he's wrong. I have nowhere near the credentials that Wendland has, and I respect him greatly as an author. And as a believer. But I do not think that he has noticed the identifying pivot points of this epistle. I think he has missed them for the intricacy of his marvelous 25-verse chiasm. And it's marvelous to look at. It fills up a whole page. It's beautiful. It even has great symmetry of its own. But he misses the pivot points. What are the pivot points? Notice the third element at the top of my outline is the word beloved or beloved plus the Greek word for faith. Now, the Greek word for beloved is also in question here 
Because if you look down below, the third element from the bottom of my outline is the word beloved, the Greek word beloved, and the Greek word for faith. That is one of the two pivot points, that pattern, that symmetry, that parallelism is one of the two pivot points of this epistle and Wendland misses it. Now, why do I say it's a pivot point? Because when you read those two verses, that is verse 3 and verse 20, you are struck by the fact that he begins both of those verses with the Greek word agapatoi, beloved. And then he follows it with a Greek word for faith, pistuo, or pistis. He does that because he is in fact setting up the structure of the communities to which he is directing his words. In the beginning... <clears throat> Beloved plus faith is an exhortation to those in the community of faith to contend, to contend for the gospel or for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now, here he's emphasizing the content of the gospel of faith. He's not emphasizing the possession of that faith. He's not emphasizing faith as that which possesses saving reality. He's emphasizing faith here as the content, the objective content of the gospel. We might say the objective doctrinal content of the gospel. But notice, it is that which is defended by the community of faith. Which means that that first beloved plus the term faith is directed to the community, the believing community, the community of faith in this community to which he is writing his epistle. So verses 1 to 3 are directed to the believing community within that group. And when he signals it again in verse 20, and then finishes it off with a farewell and doxology, he is concluding his epistle with a twofer, that is a parallel symmetry once again to the community of faith within that group to whom he's writing, the believers within that community. In other words, he is framing his epistle with words that are directed to the believers within that community. Verses 1 to 3, verses 20 to 25. They bracket the letter. And in between... In between the initial address to the community of the believing in that group and the conclusion, the concluding address to the believing community within that group, he sandwiches the unbelieving community. In other words, he places a framework bracket around that unbelieving community which shields or frames them within by the believing community. He's addressing both elements in this community to which he is writing, and he sandwiches the one by the other because the one is more important than the other. It's not that the unbelieving community is not important, but it's important insofar as its unbelief is a threat to the believing community. Now, how does he establish that antithesis? He establishes that antithesis with something else that Wendland misses in his chiastic outline. 
He establishes the antithesis by noticing in verse 4 that these intruders or false teachers have entered into the community. And they are apostates. They are apostates. At the end of his epistle, he signals his return to an address to the believing community by pointing out the true teachers in verses 17 and 18 who are the apostles. Notice the direct two-four parallel symmetry, but now this is a symmetry of antithesis. The false teachers opposed to the true teachers, the apostates opposed to the apostles, and vice versa. Antithesis, then, is a part of this epistle. The antithesis between two groups, the antithesis between the believing group within this community and the unbelieving group, the antithesis between the the false teachers and the true teachers, the antithesis between apostates and apostles. Jude, whom we do not believe is an apostle, nonetheless appealing to the apostles as that barometer of what is truth and what is to be believed by the believing members of this community. Then he begins his detailed analysis of the antithesis. His detailed analysis of the state of the community of unbelief. The sandwich, the redemptive historical sandwich, which he places in between the alert to the fact that the false teachers are abroad and the conclusion that the true teachers have the answer to that falsehood. Now, notice once again what he does within these verses 5 to 16. He has two sections, two sections. Here's the twofer again, the parallelism again. He has two sections which are virtually identical in terms of their structure. You will notice that each of the sections has three Old Testament examples. Verses 5 to 7 have the example of the Exodus in verse 5, the damned angels in verse 6, and Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. Three Old Testament examples of antithesis. That is, three Old Testament examples of unbelievers, like the unbelievers in this community to which he's writing. He's using illustration in order to make the point. The second section of this redemptive historical sandwich, verses 11 to 16, also includes three Old Testament examples in verse 11. Here, the examples are Cain, Balaam, the apostate prophet, and Korah, of the Korah, Dathan, and Abiram rebellion in the wilderness. All right, now, as we examine those two sections, we notice the similarity between three Old Testament examples in each case. Verses 5 to 7 and verse 11 both contain three Old Testament examples. But then in between the three Old Testament examples and... The next uh, use of three Old Testament examples, we have Michael, the archangel, Moses, the devil, and the Lord, the dispute over Moses' body. Then in the second set of Old Testament examples, we have Enoch, Adam, the holy ones, the angels of God, the ungodly, and the Lord as an antithesis in that section. 
why does he use Moses in the first section and Enoch in the second section? Because he's using symmetry once again. The symmetry in the first section is that it begins with the Exodus under Moses. And he ends with the death of Moses in that section and the dispute over Moses' body. He begins and ends with Moses. Surely one of the most important figures in the history of Old Testament Judaism. But then he turns his attention in section 2 to Enoch. In fact, he has information about Enoch that we don't have from any other source. Obviously given to him by direct divine inspiration. But with respect to his relationship to the other Old Testament examples in that unit, he begins with the first from Adam namely Cain. And then symmetrically, he ends with the seventh from Adam, namely Enoch. He begins and ends with the genealogy of Adam from Cain to Enoch. These Old Testament examples in these two subdivisions or these two smaller sections have an integrity and an interface, an interrelationship, all their own. That first section is anchored or pivoted around the figure of Moses. The second section is anchored and anchored and pivoted around the figure of Adam and his descendants. These are not accidental choices of illustrations. They are intentional. This is a literary frame, this is a literary symmetry, which is intended to reinforce the significance of the life of Moses and the nature of that wilderness generation. It is intended to emphasize the primeval history, beginning with Cain and ending with Enoch, and the significance of Enoch in relationship to that primeval history. Now, as if that were not enough clues to suggest and convince us that there is regular symmetrical parallelism all the way through the outline of this epistle. Notice what he also does with Michael and the archangel, etc., and with Enoch and Adam, etc. Notice how he frames it. On both sides of that incident, with Michael and the archangel in verse 9, He talks about the issue of character, the character of those who have entered in to undermine the community. In verse 8 and in verse 10, he skewers their character around the character of Moses and Michael. He frames it. He brackets it. He places Michael and Moses in antithesis to that character. And then, in verses 11 to 16, he does it again. Notice what he does on either side of Enoch and Adam, etc. He skewers the character of the interlopers. Verses 12 to 13 and verse 16 frame the centralizing character of the unique 
and godly Enoch, seventh from Adam. This is intentional. He is is throwing into bold relief the type of character which is illustrious in terms of its glory and fidelity. And the type of character that is that is not illustrated, is notorious for its unbelief and debauchery. The structure then of the epistle has been carefully crafted. This is an artist at work. Out of his Semitic background, he is an artist who is working with symmetry and parallelism, and you can see it all the way down through this outline. It is a symmetry which drives the antithesis between the two groups that are at at issue within this community to which he's writing. The group of faithful believers for whom uh, whom he wants to contend earnestly for the faith and ask that they move on in possession of the faith which prays and loves and is patient and is merciful and is devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's stark opposition, which has arisen from the immoral intruders who are sowing deceit and immorality and debauchery in this community, who stand in their character opposed not only to Moses and Enoch, but they stand opposed to Christ and to God the Father and to the Holy Spirit. This is a brilliant, short epistle. It is magnificent in its or in its rhetorical power. And Lord willing, next week we will begin to unpack that rhetorical power. So read through the epistle. I don't know how far we'll get next week. Maybe only the first verse. But read the first two. We're not in any hurry. However, this is not a Puritan 500-page exposition either. I won't kill you with that. We will make it a little more succinct and, I hope, a lot more entertaining. Any questions? See you next week, same time, same station. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to think about what is not so obvious, but which, when we search it out, makes credible sense. We realize, Lord, that some of what we have suggested is speculation, and we pray that if it is incorrect, that you would blot it from our minds. But if it has the ring of credibility and can be backed up with what we do know, We pray, O Lord, that you'll help us use that information to shed light upon this marvelous letter. For it is the letter that we thank you for. It is your revelation to us. You have spoken to us through the words of the brother of Christ, Jude, the son of our Lord, your dear son, our dear Savior. We pray, Lord, as we work through his words deliberately and with attention and with devotion. 
that you increase our own love for the faith, that we may contend earnestly for it, that we may be on guard against those intruders who would worm their way in to erode and corrode our faith. Lord, give us discernment, but at the same time, give us your grace and love to embrace the wonderful truth that is here and to understand why you've communicated that truth to us in this way through your servant Jude, who loved your son as we do too. And we ask this in the name of Jude's brother, our Lord Jesus. Amen.